This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin here with my colleagues John Avalon. Hola. And Harry. Shalomi, my homies. Hanukkah so close. When does it begin? Sometime around Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Most honest answer well, ever. It's... The Jew and the converted Jew still don't even know what Hanukkah begins. But you know why? Because it moves every year. That's correct. It, it moves. moves. That's right. Yeah. Because yeah. we do that lunar thing. We don't deal with your calendar. We've got our own. I know. Okay. On Tuesday, House Democratic leaders announced they are going to bring two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. We'll discuss whether the impeachment proceedings, which have been dominating the news, are affecting Trump's reelection chances and how they're impacting uh, the race so far. Then 14 states will vote on Tuesday, March 3rd, on what is lovingly known as Super Tuesday. These results account for 40 percent of the total delegate allocation. So let's forget about the first voting states for a bit, and we're going to focus there. And finally, Latino voters make up about 15 percent of all potential Democratic primary voters. And by the 2020 election, are expected to be the largest non-white voting bloc. So which candidates are firing up Latino voters right now? We We'll get to it all. That's a lot today. That's a lot. But first, let's get the forecast. Harry, what do you have? All right. Here's what I got cooking in my machine. Usually a kitchen you cook it. That's true. Or an oven. Or an oven. Or a toaster oven. If you're a boy like me. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly right. You are a Harry Ant. Fridge and a toaster oven. That's what it looks like, right? Mm, uh, And a George Foreman grill. (laughs) Oh, my Lord, oh, Lord. You know, I've got to stay fit. Uh, Two new national polls, one from Monmouth University, one from Quinnipiac University, and they somewhat tell similar stories. We got Biden, the Monmouth poll out ahead, 26 to Bernie Sanders is 21, Elizabeth Warren at 17, Pete Buttigieg back of the pack at 8. Quinnipiac University has Biden at 29, Sanders at 17, Warren at 15, Buttigieg at 9 percent. And this, I think, fits along with what we've been seeing over the past few months or at least the past month, which is that Biden is holding on to that national lead. If you look at my average of debate qualifying polls, he was at 28 percent in October, 25 percent November, 28 percent in December. Um, Sanders holding around the same 17 October, November, 19 percent in December. But we do see Warren falling back. She was at 22 percent in October, 17 percent in November and 16 percent in December. What is it, Jay Avalon? What do you think is behind Warren slipping back? Look, I I think that the party had a a little bit of a reality check, if you will, when it came to her actually issuing her Medicare for All plan. Wasn't anything she hadn't said before. It was there was finally a plan to back it up. And people saw that it wasn't particularly, you know, popular, A, and B, that she didn't. Or realistic. Or realistic. 
There's that too. I'd like to think the two are connected. And that she didn't match up particularly well with Donald Trump. So I think folks had sort of a collective gulp moment where they said, if we go forward with uh, Elizabeth Warren, who we may feel good about in terms of the base of the party, that could be a, a road to nowhere in terms of winning the election. And that's always been the number one category. It counts for a lot of why I think Joe Biden is Teflon. Mm-hmm. We've you know, got to start calling him Teflon Joe at this point because he is an unsinkable guy. Nothing seems to stick to him. And Sanders is just steady. But you do have, have this this top tier that really that really seems very clear. But here's the thing. A lot has happened since November. Candidates have dropped out. Candidates have joined the race. The field has moved a bit in terms of who is gaining in early states, but still not changing really at all nationally. Why is that? I think part of it is, is it people are not people are, are people still not paying attention. Ah! I, I mean, they're paying more attention this year than they had in prior years at this point. But, you know, we still have a lot of people who aren't paying that much attention. But I think, look, it comes down to a few things. Number one is that Biden has a steady base among African-American voters who simply put don't make up very much at all in either Iowa or New Hampshire. He's got 51 percent in that Quinnipiac University poll. And Sanders himself is holding on uh, fairly steady with non-white voters as well. He's about even among non-whites and white voters, at least nationally. Uh, but I think there's more here, which I think is rather interesting. You know, you talk about the difference between the early states and uh, the national polls. And what you see is that in the early states, uh, perhaps because of the polling, Buttigieg and Warren have been going after each other, right? Mm-hmm. Very harshly so. You know, they each side is asking for more dec- disclosure about their ties when, when, when Buttigieg was at McKinsey or when uh, Warren was a lawyer. Uh, and what we see so here. So small ball what they're fighting over as well, by the way. So small ball. And here's what's so interesting to me. If you look at this Quinnipiac University poll and we say, OK, among those people who choose Buttigieg as their first choice, who's their most likely second choice? It's Biden with 30 percent. Then Warren comes in at 25 and Klobuchar is in third at 14 percent. So they're not really hurting each other, it, right? It's, if they yes. are, the fact is that they may be a little bit, but if you go after the other candidate, if let's say Warren goes after Buttigieg, there's a good shot that Biden or Klobuchar could benefit versus if you're Buttigieg and you're going after Warren, what do you see here? Warren supporters, second choicers. The first one is actually Sanders at 31 percent, Buttigieg at 23 percent, Biden at 15. So again, you go after these other candidates and in a multi-candidate field, it could end up helping someone who's not involved in the quarrel. Look, I totally get Warren's backups of supporters back up being Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that's very hard to say. But the <laughs> fact that Buttigieg and Biden are, are, are you know, basically number two and three, and if you add those numbers up, it's even more than the Bernie, makes as little sense to me as the ideological breakdown, the national rankings that obviously, you know, Biden, 31 percent of moderate conservatives, but then followed by Warren and Sanders. If you add them up, it's basically equal. There are about as many moderate conservatives, Democrats who like Warren and Sanders as they do Biden. It makes no freaking sense. Unless they all are coming together and they really don't believe there's this conspiracy theory. No, that Warren is not as liberal as she puts on. She's not as liberal as Bernie Sanders, historic, the record would suggest. But other than that, yeah. Yeah. Pretty Very much. Just, <laughs> just remember, it's not all about ideology. It's also about some demographic lines Is it lines all about well. ideology? It is. I or mean, is this is just it... like words on a No, like, it, it, on it, a it's about ideology, at least in terms of for, first choice. But in terms of second and third choice, it becomes much more muddled. You guys okay. can smack me in the face with your papers right now. But does this also, looking at these national polls, Bloomberg at 5%. Does this renew the debate over whether a candidate can buy an election? 
Okay, here's my answer for you. Last month, before let the record show, we're both raising money. Our I'm, not hands. I'm not why. sure which. Before Bloomberg spent any money last month in Quinnipiac University's poll, he was at three percent. He has spent sixty million dollars on the air as of when this poll was taken to gain two percentage points. Spent sixty million dollars on television to gain two. Points. So I, you're saying there's a chance? Yes. I'm saying, sure, maybe there's a chance, but the fact He's is— He's got boatloads more. You know what? You're, about, you're, running, you're running into a wall. He Dragons is still not that well-liked among Democratic primary voters, potential Democratic primary voters. His net favorability rating in the Mama poll, I believe, was plus one percentage I, I, point. I totally get it. Oh, we, don't even bring up favorability. Look at Trump's favorability. I mean, come on. Favorability is bunk anymore. I, I am I am with your camp. But look, look, we all know the money doesn't, you know, money can't buy a lot of Hillary Clinton not spent Donald Trump. But we've never seen the amount of money that, that um, Bloomberg is apparently willing to spend. We've never seen somebody basically say, I'm going to skip the first four. I'm going to go all in on Super Tuesday. And that I'm going to be spending money on the state and local parties as well, which is going to win more hearts and minds than people think in terms of influencers on the ground. So I, I think it's a, if anybody can can pull off this kind of Hail Mary candidacy, it's Mike Bloomberg with the kind of money he's willing to spend, as long as he spends it for something larger than himself as well. Before we segue, segue uh, remember last week we talked about, and that was really one of my favorite conversations, even though it's mythological. That's not accurate. Um, A little bit. Sure. Uh, We talked last week about how Republicans were polled and they thought that Trump is a better president than Abraham Lincoln. So with that in mind, this went on for size. In this new poll, among Democrats, Barack Obama is seen as a better president than George Washington. Obama at 63 percent, Washington 29 percent. Thoughts. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the new mama poll. Even among Republicans, I believe the split is 44, Washington, Trump, 37 percent. I think that this sort of gets at why I'm not a big fan of these poll questions. You know, you ask, no stupid fun. Qu- you ask stupid questions, you win stupid prizes. This is a lot about recency bias, as I said last week, and probably a little bit of a lack of historical knowledge on the behalf of yeah, but voters. That's the point. Look, fair point about recency bias, but I'm going to be just as pissed off as Democrats who are saying this about about Barack Obama and, and, and uh, George Washington. Look, I can get why some folks, particularly in the African-American community, feel very strongly about Barack Obama as a change agent, a recent leader, um, especially at a time when folks are looking at the founding fathers and saying, look, you know, we're going to see their negative slave owners, et cetera, et cetera. But it's it's impossible to judge a current president against the founding fathers, particularly when you're dealing with sort of the the, the twin pillars of American history, Washington and Lincoln. It, it just if your impulse is to say that the most recent president of your party is better than Washington and Lincoln. You got to go back to school, and and we Washington need civic the, is education. Is this an apple to apples? Is Washington a Democrat? Washington, Washington was, was not nothing. a member of a party. Right. He was an independent president as a matter of principle. So it's not the party of Lincoln saying Donald Trump is more delicious than the person who founded their party. This, this is, is more false. about like civic education and the need for it in America. <laughs> Washington said, and y'all know I wrote a book on Washington and his farewell address. Washington said enlightened opinion is essential to self-government. That was like basic for the founding fathers. That means education. We are screwing this up seriously, people. So read up, friends. And if you don't want to read up, just listen to this, because now we're going to talk about impeachment. (laughs) 
And since I know a lot of y'all have been reading all those testimonies, let's get to that. Okay, so the Monmouth numbers are also interesting in terms of this very question on impeachment. Monmouth reporting that the current results to their questions on impeachment are statistically similar as it relates to Trump, as they saw in late September when the news broke about the Ukraine call, which, of course, was what the whistleblower complaint is all about. Forty three percent in the Monmouth poll, 43 percent say Trump should be reelected. Fifty four percent say someone new should be elected. So no difference from November, no noteworthy difference really from September. So is the takeaway at this point that impeachment hearings have done nothing to move the needle in either direction? I think that is absolutely the takeaway. And you can look at the specific questions in the Monmouth poll. Do you think president should be impeached and compelled to leave the presidency? 45 percent say yes right now. Back in September, it was 44 percent. You look at Quinnipiac University's poll right now, 45 percent say yes. Back in late September, it was 47 percent. So all both of those are within the margin of error. It's a slight plurality either way with the country basically split right down the middle as to whether or not Trump should be impeached or removed from office. Right. A couple things, though, right? First of all, I mean, there's a slight gain in the Monmouth poll over time, particularly compared to, say, August and, you know, midsummer, in in a short period of time. Inquiry was announced. And and, and again, if you look at the Bill Clinton and the Richard Nixon uh, impeachments and the polling around that, Bill Clinton would never had more than 35 percent of the American people say they were in favor of his impeachment and removal. Um, and, and, And really, until the final poll of Nixon's presidency, he was hovering around the 50% mark. This is not good news. It's being spun as good news by the Trump folks. They're whistling past the graveyard in terms of any historical comp. He is in a much worse shape in terms of popularity than, say, Bill Clinton ever was with a similarly strong economy, actually a stronger one if you mm-hmm. view by unemployment. I, I think that that's right. But I mean, look, you conceded a point. It, it, I, can see, I concede occasionally. Um, you know, when I lost my student council election, I had to give the speech. What actually, were you running for? Actually, no, I won. Um, what were you running? I was running for Hold student council vice president. I won on a ticket with Gwen Wakeman. We crushed the competition because the truth of the matter is we had it all together and our plans for the student body were just fantastic. And I'm sure you followed through and on did you all, of those all of them. Absolutely not. It was completely for my college application process. And I'd like to say that I applied early and got into the place I applied early. Uh, Look, here's the deal. Why are these numbers not really moving in my mind? I think that there are two main causes for it. Number one, if you look at our own CNN polling, what do you essentially see? You see that about a little less than 90 percent of the public already holds strong opinions on impeaching Mm -hmm. and remove either 47 support, 47 percent support, 41 percent say they strongly oppose the impeach and remove of Trump. Only 12 percent hold weak or no opinions. But I think this is the real nugget here. Among those who hold the strong opinions on impeach and remove, a majority, 51 percent, say they are following news about the impeachment proceedings very closely. Among those with weak or no opinions, those potentially swing votes, just 12 percent say they are following the impeachment proceedings very closely. So the fact is these numbers are not going to move unless the people who have weak or no opinions are actually paying attention, and they're simply not. So, it, it, what, can, can I also offer mm-hmm. this? I think no matter if they're paying close attention or not, I think we can all just I think it's time to come to a place of we need to all accept that no American is open to new information, good or bad, when it comes to the president of the United States anymore. I think we're at a place of that, because if you're not going to pay attention, if the, if the, if, the, if new information coming in on impeachment is not going to move the needle either way, either you think it is completely a farce completely a witch hunt or you think well this actually happened and i am now bringing in new information into my wonderful brain and i'm going to process it because the president is trying to 
coerce another government to get involved in our democratic process. But it's not moving the needle either way. I, we're at a place where I think people are just so over it or so something that that Americans are no longer open to new information coming in. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it seems to me there, there, there are probably a lot of folks who are at some weird tipping point of moral exhaustion meets a good economy. Um, they're exhausted by Trump news, but the economy's doing pretty well, and so they don't have the the requisite anger you typically see uh, in, in, in directed at an incumbent in in a in a, in a down economy. I think so. Maybe creating a kind of weird stasis. Unless they have him on tape stealing uh, burger, teaming up with the hamburger to steal hamburgers from Ronald McDonald, my guess is that these numbers are going to stay the same as they have for a long time. I'm not even going to address that. Uh, when You're dignify your hamburger exactly. reference exactly. Burglar. When we come back, we're going to explore some uncharted territory, at least where this pod has never gone before. Two important aspects of the Democratic primary, Super Tuesday and Latino voters. That's up next. We have talked a lot on this show about the four early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. But after that is Super Tuesday. That is March 3rd, when 14 states, one territory and Democrats living abroad and a partridge in a pear tree all vote on the same day. Thank you, John. 38 percent of the convention's pledged delegates will be chosen on Super Tuesday. Another 27 percent will be awarded the rest of that month. In other words, two thirds of the total delegates will be up for grabs after the early states at that time. This includes the country's two most populous states, California and Texas. And we have new polls out on just Mm, that. Delicious. What do the new CNN polls tell us about the big day, Harry? Well, it's a delicious partridge and a pear tree. You don't eat the partridge. Eh, whatever. What do I know? I'm Jewish. In California, Joe Biden is at 21 percent. He's joining the top tier with Bernie Sanders at 20 percent, Elizabeth Warren at 17 percent. Again, all closely bunched at the top of the field with no other candidate reaching double digits. In Tejas, it's a slightly different story. The former vice president is leading with 35 percent. Bernie Sanders, back of the pack, 15 percent, with Warren almost even with Sanders. She's at 13 percent. In both states, Pete Buttigieg lands at 9 percent, with Michael Bloomberg at 5 percent in both of those states. Andrew Yang stands at 6 percent in California. Uh, He's down at 3 percent, along with Julian Castro in the great state of Texas. So does that mean there is a chance when we get to Super Tuesday that it could reset the field? Not that we can take it exactly from these, really the first numbers out that we're seeing from these states. But when you look at what we've talked about so much in the for, for early states, we played out those scenarios about how it could be a complete mixed bag, right? Could Super Tuesday reset the field? Look, I think Super Tuesday at this particular point, if you're looking at these two states, there are, I think, two key takeaways. Number one, if this California result, if let's say the result was exactly the same as this poll, mm-hmm. nobody with the exception of Biden 
Warren and Sanders will really get any more north, anywhere north of, say, one to five, maybe at most 10 delegates out of the 400 plus that are being allocated. But I think the other key thing to take away from the California poll is that none of those top three contenders will really be able to separate themselves out from one, from each other. Because remember, all delegates are allocated proportionally in the Democratic primary with a threshold of 15 percent. So what you're really going to end up with is Sanders, Biden and Warren basically ending up with about the same number of delegates. In Texas, on the other hand, I think this is rather important. Given that 15% threshold, given that Biden's at 35% well ahead of the field, he could be net gaining on the competition at least 50 delegates. He could be net gaining upwards of 100 plus delegates. So when I look at these poll results, I say, you know what, wins and losses Binomial wins and losses don't really matter beyond the early states where, you know, someone reports, oh, Iowa, so-and-so won, even if they only won by a point. In these later contests, what matters is margins. And this Texas result, to me, is far more telling of the potential delicate margins that Joe Biden might be able to build up on Super Tuesday. Yeah, but dude, but I've got a bunch of delegates. I'm picking up delegates. Does that feel like momentum? Yeah. And, and, Eventually. And, and in a protracted fight, it, it does. I, I know it's not as emotionally satisfying right. as one but but to Harry's point, I mean, you know, if this fight is going to go significantly past Super Tuesday, it is going to be a delicate fight. Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting point. It also shows you, though, that, I mean, if, if California is close, Texas isn't, you start to see a certain gravitational pull. But a lot of these numbers don't make a ton of sense to me, i got to say. What, what, which bit? What, 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 which uh, bit? Tell me, tell me. More. We want more, John. Well, look, g- given the, you know— I'm actually just looking, even pivoting forward to how some of these Super Tuesday states are looking in the general to mm-hmm. get a sense of who's the most can- uh, competitive. Um, interesting to me that Minnesota, which Trump, Team Trump has always put a lot of emphasis on, um, he's getting the, the president's getting his butt kicked by everybody. Warren by 11, Biden by 12, Sanders by nine. The other thing that doesn't make any sense to me is North Carolina, obviously an even more traditional, crucial swing state. Makes sense to me that Biden is 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 beating Trump in North Carolina. Makes no sense to me, knowing what I know about the South, that Bernie Sanders would beat Donald Trump in North Carolina. But none. So so combining these two things is we have these poll, these kind of initial marker on these first polls from California and Texas. When you have some of these, I'm going to call them purple states and everyone can tell me, Kate, Kate, Texas isn't purple. But for the sake of argument, you've got voting on Super Tuesday, North Carolina, Virginia, Texas, just looking at some of these states that everyone talks about in terms of um, purple-ish. Do the results in the Democratic primary contest tell folks anything about how they're going to how it's going to go in the general? I I don't think so. Uh, You know, you bring in North Carolina. That's another state where Joe Biden is easily leading the Democratic pack uh, uh, in the primary polls so far. You know, depending on which poll you look at, he has leads at least 10 points, oftentimes 20 plus. uh, And you combine that again with Texas. And we're talking about a a protracted delegate fight potentially occurring. And that tells me that Joe Biden has a real foot, a, a, basically a place to step on up mm-hmm. in a Democratic primary that he can build on during Super Tuesday. And that's very similar to what we saw in 2016 with Clinton using Super Tuesday to jump out in front of Bernie Sanders and gain a lead that she never gave up. I, in, in terms of the general election, um, look, I, I think the other big takeaway from our poll was that we have Biden and Trump within a point of each other in Texas with Trump's approval rating, net approval rating, approval minus disapproval in Texas at just a percentage point. That looks like a lot of the other polling we've seen so far, which to me suggests that Texas really could be in play if Biden's the nominee. The rest of the Democrats, though, were seven points back, at least in our CNN poll in Texas. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. 
I mean, and, and just, you know, to point, you know, Harry has been skeptical at various times about Joseph Robinette Biden, and certainly many folks in the Democratic Party are. But I think you're seeing just his his buoyancy, despite all the turmoil in the campaigns, mm-hmm. um, is is really striking. Plus, his head to has numbers with Donald Trump. It, it, it is looking like he is in a very strong position heading into the primaries. Okay, so let's switch gears. The Latino community is expected to make up about 15 percent of the potential Democratic primary electorate. And it is one key voting demographic in the Democratic primary that we have not had a chance to really focus on as much to this point. And one data point that I found to, to consider, we were talking about California and Texas. So together, California and Texas, where Hispanics account for nearly 40 percent of the overall population, account for more than 15 percent of the elected delegates to next summer's Democratic convention. So think about just the impact that the Latino community has in sure. those two huge states. So while importantly, we need to say that Latino voters are not a monolith, which candidates are showing success in courting Latino voters? Do we have data on that? We, we, we do have some data from it. So in our California poll, for example, what do we see? We see that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are basically bunched up at the top, 27 percent for Biden, 25 percent for Sanders, Warren 10 percent way back. Um, Buttigieg, you know, again, having problems with non-white voters. In fact, only back at 2 percent. That's behind Booker, 6 percent. Yang, 5 percent. You go through the entire thing. Um of course, though, those polls potentially differ by state. If you look at a Fox News poll last month, what you saw among Latinos in Nevada was that Sanders was leading Biden by a 31 percent to 24 percent margin. So this is an example that I think the Latino community is much more split down the middle than the African-American community is, mm-hmm. where Biden's been leading regularly 45, 50 percent of the vote. <clears throat> Latino voters are up for grabs. Yeah. And, and maybe in Nevada, there's a disproportionate impact of, of union workers with that cohort. What's interesting to me is, is Florida, right? In 2018, you know, Republicans won both statewide races. Um, it's, uh, so it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, because of the inherent diversity of, of, the, uh, of the Latino community, you haven't necessarily seen um, that provide a critical difference in swing states uh, where you might imagine it would, given the president's policies towards the Hispanic community, particularly uh, at the border. Um, the second thing that's really striking to me here is that, and we see this a little bit um, with the African-American support in the field, Castro is at 2%. And the only and the only Hispanic Correct. candidate in the field. So it, it, it's really striking that you know he's he's a he's obviously Hispanic candidate uh, from uh, San Antonio, and um, has not been able to convert to a significant even a meaningful percentage uh, of the Latino vote. That's striking to me. It's interesting to me. I'd argue it's arguably hopeful too, because it means folks are not thinking in terms of. It identity is really interesting, primarily. but the same question then applies, as, as you know, to Cory Booker. Yep. As you would want to ask of Julian Castro as well, which is: is it wrong message or mm. a name ID problem at this point? Or is it something like we saw with Barack Obama in 2008, where folks need to see they can win before they switch their allegiance, even from their own community? Here's what I would say. In Texas, where Julian Castro is perhaps best known, he's getting 3% statewide. Uh, I don't what think, does that tell you? It's not, a name I, it's not a name ID issue. And, you know, that and, is a great point. Uh, Barack Obama, you know, there's all this talk in retrospect saying – well, it wasn't until he won in Iowa that, you know, he did well with African-American voters. He was basically tied, if not ahead of Clinton, with African-American voters bef- even before Iowa. It was just that he m- basically expanded his lead post-Iowa. And the same was true in South Carolina. He was leading among African-American voters in South Carolina even before his Iowa win. It was just that he expanded that lead. 
I, I think that there's one other thing that I really do want to hit on, which I think is interesting, which is that there has been a lot of talk, at least among the Twitter Ati, about Bernie Sanders' potential um, sort of saying base with Latino voters, or at least that he's doing well with them. And that's true. I think we've pointed that you point out. that in Nevada. Right. It's true in Nevada. He's doing better among Latino voters in um, California than he's doing among the rest of the electorate. But I do believe that at least some of this is because of age. That is, Latino voters tend to be younger than uh, the rest of the electorate at large. And indeed, I ran a little logit regression um, for all you nerds at home. It's not really that nerdy. But what is it? I literally have no idea what you mean. It's essentially that you're going to try and figure out, explain Bernie Sanders' support by a number of different variables, one of which might be whether or not they're Latino, another of which might be their age. And what we see is once we control for age, there's in fact not much of a difference between Bernie Sanders' support among Latinos in California and the rest of the electorate. That is, Latinos tend to be younger than the rest of the electorate. So what we're essentially seeing is no wonder Bernie Sanders does better among Latinos. It's because they tend to be a younger demographic group. And what is this called? A what regression? Th- this is just a logit regression. You can run a probe it as well if it strikes your fancy. But essentially— Now I'm really excited! Yeah! But probit regression? Go on. Exactly. But, but essentially, I think my point is is that Bernie Sanders is doing perfectly well with Latinos, it's, but it's, it's really more of a function of age than it is necessarily a function that he has a real base. They're in that the community. oldest candidate winning the most young support. Well, and also, I think it fits into everything we're talking about, right? I was taking a look at the issues that Latino voters care about, and what I what I am noticing in in looking through polls is number one is healthcare, number two is mm-hmm. the economy and jobs, and number three is immigration. So largely tracking with. Every other demographic group, essentially, in in terms of the issues that they care about. So. Yeah, yeah. If you're looking for a, a racial group that really separates out itself in terms of supporting this primary, it's really African Americans who are overwhelmingly in Biden's corner. Latinos look a lot more like uh, non-Hispanic whites. So interesting. And I learned a new word, which I still can't say. Loge. Logent. Okay, I'm gonna just talk about that. It's an Olympic event, right? That's right. <laughs> Moving on. That does it for us today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us uh, a little comment, if you would. And you can always find us in the meantime on Twitter. I am at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Avalon. Why don't you just spell it again, Harry? F-O-R-E-C-A-S-T-E-R-E-N-T-E-N. At Forecaster Enton on your Twitter dot. Are you sure you got it right? Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, feels good. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes: Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, David Toledo. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Forecast Fest. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.